0: CBHDD is reminding people that the Georgia Crisis and Access Line can help those worried about opioid and stimulant misuse. The toll-free number is online and is active 24-7. More information at opioidresponse.info.
1: Thanks for being with us for another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Igett. It is Tuesday, April 20th, 2021, as you... Obviously just heard on NPR news, but of course it'd be hard to miss it in uh, uh, Any of the news reports you've been hearing over the last uh, day Uh, the jury is now deliberating in the uh, trial of former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin who of course is charged with uh, several different charges of murder in the death of George Floyd last May and uh, while we have no idea how long it will take the jury to sort through the various charges against Chauvin. Um, We know that here in the city of Atlanta, certainly down in Savannah and other parts of Georgia and and across the country, uh, cities are gearing up for potential protests once the uh, verdict comes in. So we're going to keep an eye on that to see what happens as the day proceeds. Walter Mondale, uh, Jimmy Carter's vice president, died yesterday, and we're going to talk a little bit about that, uh, and a lot more on today's edition, excuse me, of Political Rewind. It's Tuesday, which means my partner on the show today from the Atlanta General Constitution is senior reporter Tamar Hallerman. How you doing, Tamar?
0: Hey, Bill. Uh, finally recovered. I got my, my second COVID shot on, on Sunday, so I was knocked off my feet a little bit on Sunday night and a little bit yesterday morning, but, but feeling good and, and very lucky that I was able to get it.
1: Well, congratulations on that. Just so we, we always like to keep track of these things in terms of reactions, which, which shot did you get?
0: I got Pfizer. Um, and on okay. Sunday night, I, I described it to people. I felt like I got hit by a truck <laughs> in my body, but it yeah. was worth it. Um, I felt pretty good uh, yesterday afternoon and um, worth it to to be protected going forward. So yeah. very happy I got it.
1: Uh, well, we're so glad you did. Rene Alegria joins us. He's president and CEO of Mundo Hispanico Digital. You know, Renee, <clears throat> speaking of Getting your shot. There are any number of people who are saying they're afraid of getting sick after being vaccinated, and so they're resisting getting the shot. And of course, the reality is that coming down with COVID can be a whole lot worse.
2: <laughs> no, it, it's it's absolutely true. I I got my uh, second dose a, a week ago, and I share uh, Tamar's uh, sentiment that it was a a little bit rough on my system. I felt like I had just gotten back from a, a rave in Oakland, but I I recovered.
1: Well, we're glad uh, about that, of course. Chuck Williams is with us. He is a reporter at WRBL-TV in Columbus, but had a long career. I mean, a long, long career before that as a print reporter in Columbus, Georgia. Have you gotten your
3: vaccine yet, Chuck? Fully vaccinated here, I actually went the public's route um, as a caregiver to my mother, and I got vaccinated in early February, um, and I got the Moderna, and I had the reaction to the first shot. I slept the entire Sunday after getting the shot, had very little reaction to the second
1: shot. Okay, well, we're glad you're vaccinated, too. We welcome to the show for the first time today, uh, Chart Riggle, who is a reporter for the Marietta Daily Journal. Thanks for joining us, Chart. Thank you for having
4: me, Bill. Um, I think we're we're all in the same boat because I also, like tomorrow, got my shot on Sunday evening, and uh, a little bit of a little bit of sleepiness, but um, feeling very good by Tuesday morning, which I'm thankful for.
1: Good. Chart, tell us, since this is your first appearance on the show, tell us a little bit about yourself. Are you are you a Georgia native? Did you grow up up in Marietta? Where are you from? Where'd you go to school? I am from uh,
4: Atlanta. I uh, went to North Atlanta High School. Um, University of Georgia as well. Um, have lived in a couple places, Colorado, New York City, um, but have spent the vast majority of my time here on earth in
1: the state of Georgia. Well, thank you so much <clears throat> for joining us today. All right, let's, let's talk a little bit about the Chauvin trial and, and then talk about how preparations are being made for any kind of responses uh, to it. Uh, uh, Chuck, um, you know, it's, it seems impossible in America today for anything in the news to not turn into a partisan matter. And I mention that now, because yesterday, in, uh, as, as the trial was coming to a conclusion, after closing arguments, um, Chauvin's attorney, Eric Nelson, uh, made a couple of uh, bids to have uh, the judge, Peter Cahill, declare a mistrial. And one of the uh, reasons that he thought a mistrial was warranted is uh, because uh, Representative Maxine Waters was in Minneapolis over the weekend, and Eric Nelson contends that she made comments that were intimidating to the jury uh, by essentially saying that uh, people should watch the, uh, uh, water, saying that people should watch the response and, and become active in protesting it. I'm, I'm obviously paraphrasing her uh, right now. The judge said, no, it isn't reason for a mistrial, but Maxine Waters' comments could be reason uh, for an appeal. Chuck? You know, I watched that
3: very carefully. And it's interesting because I think the word that uh, Representative Waters used was confrontational. And that word has a meaning to it. I mean, confrontational means what it means it means to confront someone. Uh, and. I'm watching this jury in a couple – I'm watching the jury here. I've covered one trial in Muskogee County. Juries are very different, it looks to me, in the COVID era than they were before COVID. And how does that speak to what's going to happen here? Is this – you know, the pools are a little different, The some, some of the people that are a little less. That are more cautious about COVID are less likely to get into a jury pool, which means they're less likely to turn into a jury. I'm wondering if that's what what's going to happen in Minnesota and Minneapolis as this, as this thing plays out over the next couple of days. But, you know, judges tell jurors not to listen to the news. Don't do anything. But we know what human nature is, and this is all around us. You know, so are these jury jurors here? Some of this possibly, I mean, very, very possible. So, you know, that's the part to me that's interesting, Bill. I mean, if that makes any sense at all.
1: Um, Sam, is uh, Tamar back with us? I know we lost her for a minute. No, Tamar uh, dropped out for a minute. Um, Renee, uh, the, the reason I bring up the Maxine Waters uh, uh, comments and then the response during the trial and talked about it in partisan terms is that on the Hill Republicans are roundly condemning her for making these remarks whereas Democrats including the Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi uh, is saying she didn't do anything more than re- recommend that uh, people take the same kind of nonviolent action that Dr. King did uh, m- many years ago um, but, it, as I said, it just feels like we cannot avoid uh, partisanship, uh, even in a, in a trial as uh, prominent, as important as this one is.
2: Yeah, I, I, listen, I, I think that uh, with with the day uh, and, and the climate that we're living in, with what we saw in the January 6th insurrection, you know, everything is heightened right right now. I don't think that there is one African-American out there that saw video of the reporting of the trial and shuddered um, with the inhumanity of what they saw on the tape. The stakes could not be higher to so many individuals in this country. We're all watching to see what happens in a way that, I just I just can't remember and I think I think again everything is heightened due to January 6th the political climate our our relations as a as a country and the polarization what Maxine Waters said is something that I think a lot of people are feeling out there um it was an unfortunate choice of words I think given the timing but the sentiment is there and that you just can't
1: certainly deny. Um, Tomorrow, I know you're back with us, and I'm glad you are. Let me turn to you, if I may. Um, it, the AJC reporting this morning on how people are preparing for the verdict includes a quote from the president of the University of Georgia's chapter of the NAACP, Alex English, and he says this, he he's responding, and, and Renee just talked about our seeing the video again and again during this trial—the horrific video of George Floyd dying. Um, Alec English says black trauma should not be on replay; it should not be trending. It's important that we find a solution and quickly address the problems facing our community that white supremacy has given credence to. And he uh, goes on. To say that as a black man in America, he's pessimistic, but he is hoping his pessimism about the verdict is wrong. At, at, Tamar, I was a little surprised, and my relation to the law is like watching Perry Mason when I was a kid, so let's face it, I don't, I'm not a lawyer, but I was a little surprised that Eric Nelson showed that video over and over again in his defense a summary because it just reminded us of how horrific... The death of George Floyd was, whether Derek Chauvin is found guilty or not.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, as for, um, you know, neighborhoods around the city preparing, I mean, it's something we at the AJC are thinking about as we're, we're planning our coverage. You know, we got a note from our editor the other night, first of all, telling us to stay safe, but also to raise your hand if you're able to help cover these, you know, what we're expecting to be mass demonstrations, especially if, um, you know, Derek Chauvin isn't, um, you know, isn't convicted by this jury. Uh, we saw widespread demonstrations in, you know, downtown in midtown in Piedmont Park. We saw, um, you know, issues in Buckhead and in some of the malls. And so I think given the history of what we've seen about, um, you know, many police officers getting off without being convicted in past shootings of, of uh, black and brown people, I think a lot of people are anticipating the worst just because there is this record of, you police officers not um, getting convicted by these juries.
1: Chart, uh, the New York Times uh, did a study which they published yesterday speaking to just what Tamara's talking about, which is how rare it is, first of all, for police officers to be uh, even brought to trial, indicted, and even less frequently that they are in fact convicted. And that goes for a long string of highly publicized, very very prominent deaths of black people uh, in, at the hands of police officers, including Eric Garden, a Gardner, Gardner in 2014 and um, many others chart.
4: Yeah, certainly. We, you know, we had a similar situation here in Cobb County earlier this year um, where a uh, young man, Vincent Truitt, uh, this was about a month after Rayshard Brooks was killed in Atlanta uh, was shot and killed by Cobb police um, You know, very fraught time when this happened. Um, There was a lot of debate over the circumstances of that. Uh, The police alleged he brandished a gun at them. The gun was recovered on the scene. His family was very adamant that he hadn't brandished it. Um, And then sort of in the midst of this, we have the uh, sort of wave election that swept across the county last November. And and among those was um, Flynn Brody, our new district attorney, who is a self-styled progressive prosecutor. Um, but he did not, uh, he, he, elected to refer it to the grand jury and he didn't recommend any charges. He put, put that in front of them and said, I'm going to leave this up to you all. Um, and the grand jury has, uh, I believe earlier this year, um, elected not to pursue any charges, declared that the officer was, uh, justified in his actions. Um, and, you know, I think we're, we're, Maybe going to see a similar thing in Atlanta. Uh, we've got Fannie Willis, who's trying to navigate how she's going to be involved in uh, the trial of Officer Rolfe, who killed Richard Brooks. Um, so in, even in these situations where we have, uh, you know, African-American prosecutors, prosecutors who are as progressive, there's still a lot of complications going on there, um, especially when it comes to uh, charging police officers.
1: Uh, Renee, I I know you want to jump in. Uh, Let me say one thing very quickly, and then I do want to turn it over to you. Uh, I want to be careful here. Um, It's one thing to say there's a history of police not being charged or convicted uh, in incidents in which black people are—they kill black people. I am not suggesting that that has anything to do with what's happening right now with the jury in the the George Floyd case. That is in the hands of the jury and nothing any of us on this show say has anything to do with what the jury decides uh, uh, today or today or in the days ahead.
2: Um, I I, I was just gonna comment on how during this trial, you saw, I think it was five police officers testify for the prosecution. Mm -hmm. And it seemingly broke this kind of blue code for the first time. When we saw this playing out, right, and it, it, I, think, I think that right there changed the perception of this unified police antagonist force. I think, I think there is heart and compassion in there, and I think we saw it play out during this trial, which I think uh, did uh, wonders for minority communities like, like my own, for sure.
0: At the same time, I think you are seeing a lot of communities kind of bracing for the worst if if this trial does kind of end up the way that that all the others have. And so I'll be very curious to to see how this ends up. You know, this jury, I believe it's half white. Um, I think there are four people of color and then two mixed race people on the the jury. So it'll, it'll be very interesting to see. Or do we end up in a mistrial like several um, of these other cases in the past that have kind of, um, you know, in subsequent pro- subsequent prosecutions, things have kind of broken down and a lot of these cops haven't been indicted or or convicted. So um, it'll be interesting to see how much this breakdown of this blue code, as Renee was saying, could change um, the jury deliberations at all.
3: You know, I want to start play. A was talking about what Tamar just alluded to is those five officers They didn't miss words. They point-blank said policy was violated, Chauvin was wrong, he acted outside of the way they're trained. You know, it really was extraordinary to see not one, not two, but officer after officer and officers within his own department up to and including the chief to come out and say, whoa, wait a minute he didn't do this right and this is what resulted in it. I think oh, I, I think that will have, when this is all said and done over the next years and this plays out, I think that alone will probably have a more profound effect on the way these type of cases are treated moving forward than anything else out of this trial in my opinion.
1: Hey, Renee, I want to make sure we don't lose something very important you just said a moment ago. You said that the parade of uh, police witnesses against Chauvin, which included, of course, the Minneapolis chief of police, uh, had an impact in a positive way on the Hispanic community. It was not uh, missed. Tell us a little more about that, because I think that's a really important observation.
2: Sure. I, listen, I, I I think that by watching the the five officers come out and say, this is wrong, this, this should not have played out in this way, it did bring about more of a sense of, of trust from the Hispanic community uh, to law enforcement, and there has been a gulf there for a very long time. Um, You saw the the shooting of of Toledo, the 13-year-old in Chicago, just recently. That, too, you know? I mean, another video footage from an officer cam that's hard to watch, you know? And this happens all the time, every day. Um, What I do think, and bringing it back around to protests and and discord with whatever the verdict is, you know, I've heard it said from folks that I respect, uh, progress, can be uncomfortable and there is going to be many uncomfortable moments going forward as we really put a spotlight on the treatment of individuals who are arrested who are treated poorly who are killed during these types of uh, acts and so you know it's 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 a very very I think historical time in which we're living in
1: Sharp, before we leave the trial itself, um, I want to uh, uh, read to you and everyone uh, the um, some of the things that, the, uh, that Judge Cahill said in his instructions to the jury. Amelia Brock uh, pointed this out to me this morning. A- and I thought, you know, I don't, again, I don't really know as much about the law as uh, uh, obviously... Uh, many of the people who are on the show routinely, attorneys do, but, but Cahill seemed to do an awfully uh, good job being even-handed in the way he oversaw this trial. And here's one of the things he said to the jury in his instructions, quote, we all have feelings, assumptions, perceptions, fears, and stereotypes about others. Some biases we are aware of, others we might not fully be aware of, which is why they are called unconscious biases. No matter how unbiased we think we are, our brains are hardwired to make unconscious decisions. We look at others and filter what they say through the lens of our own personal experience and background. Because we all do this, we often see life and evaluate evidence in ways that tend to favor people who are like ourselves or who have had life experiences like our own. And he goes on, you know, that's a remarkable statement under any circumstances about who we are in a time in which race consciousness has become such a prevalent concept in in our thinking. It is remarkable. It is remarkable. Go go ahead, chart, chart. Let me get chart in here first, please. Um, Oh, Sure.
4: I, I think, um, yeah, that, that certain, certainly to me sounds like an acknowledge, acknowledgement from the judge that even in this situation where you know you want objectivity from the jury, you want them to be dispassionate. There's a recognition that you know that that objectivity has its limits. Um, and but it, you know I think it also speaks to perhaps the the, the death of George Floyd, Westo, so, But in a lot of these police killings, these things do really appear as a, as a kind of Rorschach test for a lot of people, Um, you know, getting back to that, that partisan divide on this, um, you know, you can have two different people who, who look at the exact same video and, you know, depending on their political affiliations, their uh, personal background, their experience with law enforcement, all that sort of thing will come away with two wildly different interpretations of it. Um, And, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that's a, a very important message from, from the judge in this case to um, sort of wherever your, your decision takes, you recognize that, uh, you know, there, there are so many more factors there than just your own uh, notion of what um, impartiality might be.
1: And Chuck, it's really an important statement for all of us living in the times that we do. It's a, excuse me for interrupting you, Charter. I apologize
3: for that. Uh, it is an extraordinary statement, and I think it's a statement that I've sat through a lot of charge conferences. Um, as the judge and the attorneys work out exactly what language is going to be read to the jurors regarding the charges and how they and how they deal with it, how they deal with it is done outside of the jury's presence, and it's usually done with very few people in the courtroom. People don't stick around for it. There is no question Judge Cahill put an enormous amount of thought and effort into what he said, and when he said it, I would suspect everyone, every attorney in that room knew what was coming to the wording of how he was going to say it. That, to me, is one of the things that makes it extraordinary.
1: All right. um, Chuck, you get the last word in the first segment. We got to take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about a Georgia story that um, is related in many ways uh, to what's going on in Minneapolis right now. You're listening to Political Rewind.
2: Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else.
1: Chart Riggle, reporter at the Marietta Daily Journal, Chuck Williams, WRBL-TV in Columbus, and, of course, senior reporter at the AJC, Tamar Hallerman, uh, join us today. I want a quick final note. Uh, One of the reasons I brought up uh, 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 Maxine Waters is that Marjorie Teller-Green, of all people, is now calling for her to be expelled from Congress for essentially inciting a riot uh, with her comments in Minneapolis. Uh, There are many people who have pointed out how uh, ironic it is given the Republicans who have not spoken out condemning the insurrection at the U.S. Capitol on January 6th. Um, Tomorrow, let's bring this home to Georgia. Um, there's been some reporting in the last couple of days about the fact that while legislators passed a bill which would prevent local counties and cities from reducing their police budgets by more than 5%, there are significant questions about whether there's any enforceability behind this measure, and more to the point, whether this is merely a partisan political response to the calls for defunding uh, the police, which arose after the George Floyd uh, death last year. Tomorrow we're not hearing you. We're, we've lost tomorrow again. Uh, chart, weigh in on this.
4: Um, sure, yeah. I, I think, well, what's interesting about that is that you know, obviously there was that proposal that was voted down by the Atlanta city council. Um, and there were, there were some rumblings about this from Athens, uh, I believe, but, um, you know, it, aside from some notable exceptions in the United States house, sort of in the most liberal wing of the democratic party, I don't particularly know of any, uh, major Democrats, particularly here in Georgia who have called to defund the police. Um, Right. You know, we had this come up recently in Cobb County. We had some citizens uh, vocalize to the Board of Commissioners that they were concerned about uh, the possibility of that. Um, the irony of that being that, uh, thus far in twenty twenty one, our new Democratic Board of Commissioners has actually put a lot more money into police funding, um, and and that's something that we see being borne out in a lot of. Um, a lot of polling on this issue is that a, a lot of Democrats are not necessarily in favor of defunding the police. They're in favor, perhaps, of trying to look at new approaches to mental health and um, you know situations where perhaps you know a, a a firearm is not the best way to deal with the problem. Um, but I don't, you know, it's on the question of whether it's a partisan issue or a political issue. I just don't. I haven't seen that as a political demand from. Uh, mainstream Democrats, particularly here in Georgia.
1: Well, yeah. Let me tomorrow. I want to bring you in now that you're back with us. But of course, the, most people now consider that this phrase "defund the police" was an unfortunate choice of words. Po- police reform is more to the point. And when I called it perhaps a partisan political move, I was talking about Republicans reacting to Democrats' sure. calls for uh, defunding the police. Tomorrow.
0: I mean, think about it. It's great politics for for Republicans right now. You know, on the one hand, and Democrats do point this out, Republicans are the parties of local control. This is the definition of kind of taking those choices away. At the same time, talk about a rallying point for Republicans. You know, they talk about how extreme and radical Democrats are. This is a very easy way to win points by saying that you're standing with the police and Blue Lives Matter and all this stuff. It's also worth, worth taking into account the sponsor of this bill, Houston Games from Athens, a rising star in the legislature um, whose name has been batted around to replace Jody Heiss in Congress now that, that Heiss is running for secretary of state. Um, so this is a great rallying point for him on the campaign trail should he choose to run. So I think if you're Republicans, it's an easy win, certainly, even if, um, you know, and sorry, Chart, if you already said this, my, my phone line has been cutting in and out. Um, but even though a lot of these, um, you know, Democratic, you know, city councils and county commissions haven't actually really been considering this issue, it's still worth it as as an easy political win for Republicans, I would think. I, I, I
2: okay. agree with him. I agree with Tamar in that, you know, I mean, this is this is political strategy uh, at its best. Right. It's not enforceable, but it gives the, uh, you know, echo chamber political machine that we we now consume media in the soundbites it requires to rally their base and do what they need to do. It's 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 smart politics. Is it is it what is it real? No. Can it be enforced? No. So I think, you know, through time and through debate and discourse we'll be able to, you know, take a look at all that, but but it's a shrewd move. Chuck- It's a political
3: move, but I want to throw something in that sort of shows that I haven't heard a lot of Democrats talk about fund police either. If you look at this House bill that passed that had the 5% uh, cut, it was a House bill, but in the Senate, it was carried by Randy Robertson, a Harris County Republican, spent his entire career in the Muskogee County Sheriff's Office, law enforcement guy. Randy was in the Republican majority that pushed it, but... Four Democrats in the state Senate supported that bill. One of them was Ed Harbison, a longtime senator from South Columbus, very urban district for the most part. Um, Ed's my senator um, from where I live. And so there were Democrats that were on board with this bill. I think one from Albany supported it. So black Democrats.
1: So that tells you something. Well, what does it tell you, uh, uh, Chuck, that that there's a bipartisan uh, feeling that efforts to take away police budgets is um, is a cross party line?
3: Maybe. I mean, you've got to look at Harbison's background. He's a former Marine. I mean, he's a law and order guy. So and he's been in the General Assembly a long time. It was a broadcaster before he before he became a politician and. But there are Democrats, prominent Democrats, that have no intention to defund the police. And when it comes time to vote, they're going to
1: vote not to defund the police, as you see with what harvest said. Okay. Um, well, we're going to watch to see uh, how – tomorrow. to the best of my I, – I, I really apologize that I'm raising a question that I don't know the answer to. I don't know if – To the best of my knowledge, this bill, has it been signed by the governor? Is it still sitting out there? Do we know?
0: I don't think it has been signed. (laughs) I don't think it has
1: either. I don't think so either. If it has, it's been done quietly. Okay, Um, let's move on. Tamar, interesting report, a study that was just released by an independent organization which uh, looked at voting laws in all 50 states. Um, the Center for Election Innovation, uh, and they came back and they said, kind of gave mixed reviews to Georgia's new law. They said that in Georgia, early voting is relatively easy and that it remains so even under the state's new election law, but also called Senate Bill 202 a step backward because it includes troubling provisions that will make voting harder and some that are ripe for abuse it was it was another example that this is a rorschach test you can look at how at, at at provisions in this law and depending on which side of the aisle you're looking from you have reached your own conclusions as to whether this is voter suppression or voter security but it is interesting
0: yeah, absolutely, and I mean, this is such a massive bill, and it makes so many changes from top to bottom that absolutely there are things you can point to that say, oh, well, it expands early voting, isn't that great? Um, it was interesting to see the two provisions that this researcher really singled out as, as being potential for, for abuse, and that's what really stuck out to me. He mentioned, um, and this is something we've talked about on the show, the, the provision that allows the state to take over local elections offices. Um, And obviously, um, you know, the the Secretary of State's office is particularly not happy with how Fulton County has run its elections in the past, would be very interested to see if Fulton or other big metro districts uh, could end up getting singled out. The other provision was uh, one that we haven't talked about as much that would allow for unlimited challenges to the eligibility of voters. which the researcher thinks could, could be a burden on legitimate voters. So um, that's something I would love to explore more because I, I haven't heard a ton about that, that provision.
1: No, I, I agree. I was, when I read that, I realized that that's something I want to look into a little more uh, seriously and, and maybe talk about on a future uh, show. Renee, and of course, one of the other uh, features of the new law um, that I think was mentioned in this study is drop boxes. Which again, you can look at from either side, Republican or Democrat. As a Republican, you would argue that drop boxes were an invention for the 2020 election uh, that were put in place informally to allow people who voted uh, by mail to have some place to drop off their uh, ballots. Uh, now, the lo- it's been set in law that, that drop boxes will be available in every county, but they are limited in number, and they are also being put in secure places that can only be accessed during business hours as it, the early voting locations. So, you know, it, it's, it's, a, it's hard to say what you believe to be the case of drop boxes.
2: It's, I mean, look. The big, the bigger picture, <clears throat> I think, is that we're we're talking about um, the accessibility of our rights to vote. You know, and yes, I agree with everyone here that there are pros and cons depending on how you look at this. But when you break it down into, you know, limiting the number of drop boxes, um, that seems a little bit outrageous. I, I mean. If we limited the number of Chick-fil-A's per county, there would be, you know, protests in the street, right? (laughs) Violent ones. So just overlay that into Dropbox world, and you see how ridiculous it sounds. I mean, I'm sorry, uh, Chuck? Bill, we had uh,
3: Nancy Bourne, who's the director of elections here in Muskogee County, on my podcast last week. And she broke down the law, and then Dropboxes. Muscogee County, because we're under 200,000 registered voters, it goes from five drop boxes to one. And that one will be at the City Services Center, which is centrally located in midtown part of Columbus. But I mean, that's a change. And, and you can't access that drop box after Friday before the Tuesday election. Because their limit, I mean, it's only open while the hours of advanced voting are open. So that is a restriction. But it was interesting to get Nancy to break that down because drop boxes will be less prevalent in Muscogee County in, le- in elections moving forward.
1: Um, chart, there are continuing to be uh, calls on the left for boycotts uh, uh, against this law. The latest target, Home Depot, for remaining sort of neutral in, in, in its uh, uh, standing. It, they've said very little about it. But, but I, I called to your attention, all of you, before the show, an interesting uh, piece, an op-ed piece that was written in The uh, Hollywood Reporter by a very, very prominent, uh, talented Atlanta actor named Bethany and Lind, who, you know, when Will Smith pulled his picture out of Georgia be- in reaction to the new law there are people in the industry here who are very concerned and Bethany and Lynn says if film and tv projects move the powerful moguls meaning the hollywood moguls would be pulling their business from people who largely helped get the statewide and national results that liberal claim liberals claim to want she says look The motion picture business, the television production business, is made up largely of uh, technicians and artists who tend to be Democratic and vote Democratic. They've moved to the state and helped uh, win it for Joe Biden, helped win it for Raphael Warnock and John Hassoff. And she suggests that they'd be essentially cutting off their nose despite despite their faces if they all leave.
4: Yes, certainly. And, And this is more or less exactly what I heard from a number of Democrats Um, kind of in the week between the passage of SB202 and then the pulling of the All-Star Game from uh, our state. And then the immediate aftermath was, you know, I I spoke with Representative Terry Anolowitz who said, you know, I disagree with this. I understand why it happened, but this is going to hurt uh, the people who made arguably have made Joe Biden's agenda even feasible um, with the, the victory of those two Senate runoffs. And even speaking with several Republicans in the lead up to that, you know, I they said, you know, I, I don't think my my Democratic colleagues want to lose the all star game. I don't think they want businesses getting yanked out of Georgia. Um, now, obviously, that conversation gets a little more heated, I think, the the closer to the national media you get. Um, but at the local level, I you know, I don't I didn't hear from any Democrats who were gloating about. Uh, losing business, who were saying I told you so. Certainly there a, a sort of a different tone from their Republican colleagues, but you know, there, there was a concerted effort on the part of a lot of Democrats. Um, Lisa Cupid, our chairwoman, for one, was maybe the most vocal uh, opponent of moving the All-Star Game. You know, she met with the head of the uh, Players Association. She even said, you know, if I need to talk to the White House, I'll do that. Um, and You know, obviously, this this boycott issue is is I've just seen the the Home Depot has been called out and, you know, sort of going off in different directions. But by and large, I think the sentiment expressed in that op-ed is not very dissimilar from the way Democrats
1: uh, and, of course, Republicans feel here in Georgia. Tomorrow, let me give you the final word before we get to our break.
0: Yeah, and it also is very similar to what we hear from people like Stacey Abrams, um, who who mm-hmm. has become a, a national voice. Um, so, yeah, that's <laughs> that's it. Chart explained it well.
1: As we as we go to the break, uh, I do want to point out that uh, Kelly Leffler's new vo- voter mobilization group, which is looking to add uh, conservative voters to the to the rolls, she's got digital billboards running around Truist Park, attacking President Biden, Stacey Abrams, Raphael Warnock, and others uh, for their decision to pull, for the MLB decision to pull the All-Star game out. I, I find that interesting, Renee, and, and here's why. Um, I, it's obviously an issue of mobilization that could have a great, great effect in encouraging Republicans uh, to vote against these Democrats. But I gotta say, if I'm headed to a baseball game do I really want to see a political message? Like, I'm not sure it might not backfire, Renee. Sure, yeah. No, I mean,
2: obviously, we want to eat hot dogs and, and, and drink a beer and, and, you know, do the seventh inning stretch and not, not have politics enter our our afternoon at the ballgame, right? But, but I, I, I do have to say that I, I'm originally from Arizona. And during when uh, Arizona passed SB 1070, which was a very controversial bill that made it legal to racially profile anyone who looked Hispanic and stop them, um, there was an outcry of, and rightly so, of individuals from other parts of the country to boycott all things Arizona. And as a proud Arizonan, I, I took umbrage with that because it was exactly those individuals that the state needed to go there to voice their opinion during a time when all of that was being killed in arizona then there are parallels here
1: um got to get to a break renee alegria gets the last word he's got food on his mind he's talking chick-fil-a hot dogs and beer (laughs) we'll be back with more in just a moment We'll get back to the panel in a moment, but a couple of quick program notes. First of all, uh, everybody talked at the beginning of the show about getting their second uh, vaccination and about how it made them sick or not sick. Well, uh, Amelia Brock and Sam Bermas-Dawes are each, by coincidence, getting their second shots today. And just to be safe, just to be careful in case they have negative reactions, we decided last week we would give them a break tomorrow. And so we're going to... Uh, have an encore presentation of one of the most talked about shows we've done this year. That's an interview with Ty Sedgley, the author of Robert E. Lee and Me, A Southerner's Reckoning with the Myth of the Lost Cause. He grew up in northern Virginia and in Walton County, Georgia, a career military officer who came to understand that all he'd been told about the Confederacy was false and that, in fact, what it really was was a traitorous rebellion against the United States government. It's a fascinating conversation, and we'll bring it to you uh, on the show tomorrow. Thursday, we're going to talk about climate change. And on Friday, the speaker of the Georgia House, David Ralston, will be here to talk with uh, Patricia Murphy of the AJC and me. So an interesting week uh, still to come. I want to talk for just a couple minutes about the fact that Walter Mondale uh, died yesterday. he was, of course, Jimmy Carter's vice president. Uh, uh, former President Carter issued a statement talking about what a remarkable, humble, uh, and, and a forward-thinking man Walter Mondale uh, was. I want to play just for a moment, if I may, one of the most important moments of Mondale's career. He became a United States senator uh, after Hubert Humphrey uh, became LBJ's vice president, and Mondale was appointed and then remained in the Senate where he supported fair housing, civil rights uh, laws, became Jimmy Carter's vice president, and then in 1984 was the Democratic Party nominee for president. And what I thought of immediately when I thought of his death was the evening in the Cow Palace in San Francisco where the Democrats held their convention— Mondale came in on Thursday night to give his acceptance speech, and he um, pointed out in his speech, we'd seen a Reagan tax cut that had led to a huge deficit and to a recession in the early 80s, and now Mondale was telling everyone that the only way to recover was to raise taxes, and here's what he said. I mean business. By the end of my first term... I will reduce the Reagan budget deficit by two-thirds. Let's tell the truth. That must be done. It must be done. Mr. Reagan will raise taxes, and so will I. He won't tell you. I just did. Well, 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 there was cheering on the floor. I happened to have been standing right next to the then governor, a very conservative Democrat, Joe Frank Harris, during that speech. And when I heard Mondale say those words, I turned to look at Governor Harris, and his face fell as if he was a candle with me- wax melting uh, down his cheeks. Uh, it was the death knell for Walter Mondale. He never recovered. He lost a historic—he was the biggest loss since FDR beat Alf Landon, and he he lost every state except for his home state of Minnesota. He won the District of Columbia, and that was it. But Tamar, he was considered one of the great uh, visionaries of the Democratic Party and a true, humble gentleman, Tamar.
0: Yeah. And what was so interesting is, is to me anyway, was how much he changed the role of the vice presidency. You know, before that it really was this ceremonial job with very little power and still frankly, Not as, not a ton of power, but he, he kind of took on a a much more expanded policy role and was able to really make his mark on the office. And, you know, that was something he raised with Jimmy Carter when they were discussing, you know, whether he'd be his running mate. And, and Carter really stuck to that. Um, you saw him make his mark even internationally in the, in the Middle East. Um, when he helped with, with Menachem Begin um, in the 70s uh, to, to cut a deal with Egypt and sell it, and then come back home and sell it to American Jews. Um, so I think after him, you saw that vice president take on a more expanded role. Um, and he really kind of forged that path for people.
3: Chuck. You know, I read President Biden's statement It was rather lengthy on, on, on Vice President Mondale. And what he said was when he, in 2008, when he was about to become President Obama's vice president, the first call he made was to Mondale to talk about how the job was done. And that was in the statement that the President released. To me, that was very telling.
1: Chart, one of the things I thought about when I read the obituary—by the way, we should also point out, and we haven't, that he also was the first uh, a presidential candidate to name a woman, Geraldine Ferraro, to be his running mate. He opened the door for uh, people like Kamala Harris uh, today. But what I was starting to say is uh, this was a man who had humility, who was able to laugh at himself— he seemed so out of place in the politics of so much of what we see in terms of the ego-inflated politicians of our time.
4: Certainly, I mean, I just listening to that um, that clip he played, it's 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 hard to imagine that kind of uh, directness <laughs> and and honesty going over so well these days. I, I suppose um, the other interesting thing I, I thought about uh, reading the. Obituaries last night and this morning was um, him as kind of a a, a bridge figure within uh, you know Minnesota politics and within the Democratic Party. You know the the sort of the protege of Hubert Humphrey, who is kind of one of the arch liberals of the mid-century. Um, and then I, I read that he was sort of a mentor to um, Amy Klobuchar, who interned for him and worked at his law firm, um, and. You know, was was kind of in between those those two periods of the Democratic Party, from you know that that classic sort of Midwestern, Union-based liberalism, uh, down to um, you know the the more uh, you know more centrist turn the Democratic Party took in the '90s after um, Mondale's wipeout in '84.
1: Here's the other thing I thought about, Rene. In 1984, when Walter Mondale said yes, he'd raise taxes um, and gave a liberal vision of the future under his presidency, He turned off Southerners completely. I mean, Georgia was not going to vote for a liberal of any sort, let alone one who was about to raise taxes. And yet we've come full circle in some ways, not on the tax issue. But the fact is, the Democratic Party of Georgia today, thanks to Stacey Abrams, embraces far more progressive policies than it certainly did back when Joe Frank Harris was governor.
2: Yeah, you know what? I I think that history is judging the Carter administration and everyone associated with the Carter administration as being visionaries with what they were doing at the time. They were not popular. Mondale certainly was trounced, but he, you know, like you you can tell a lot about a person by how they lose. Uh, Contrast that to how uh, the the most recent president lost, and we have a person of, of compassion and class.
1: Renee Alegria, we're completely out of time, but thank you for being uh, with us. Uh, Chart Riggle, great to have you come back. Chuck Williams, as always, a pleasure. And Tamar Hallerman, I always appreciate your Tuesday partnership on this show. We're completely out of time for today's Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. We'll be back with a special show tomorrow. um, But in the meantime, take care, stay healthy, wear your mask, put it above your nose. I still still see people who don't. Go out and get your vaccination if you haven't so far. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye.